This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal, starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Freedom Talks podcast. Uh, this is Brady, and I'm back with Mike Karaginas, uh, and he is the owner of Freedom Physical Therapy Services. He's been on the podcast once before, and um, he's here to ta- today to talk a little bit about migraines. Um, it's Migraine Awareness Month. Um, 30 million people every year uh, deal with migraines. And it's a big issue that we see in the clinic, and it's a big issue we see in the healthcare industry. And physical therapy is a great way to deal with it. And so we wanted to just do a little discussion today uh, about what migraines are and how to treat migraines uh, in the best way possible. So 12% of people uh, 12 years or older um, report migraines. Uh, They're more common in women than in men. Uh, 17% versus 6% in men. Nearly 25% of migraine sufferers frequently lose time at work, home, uh, and social settings due to migraines. And more than 50% of sufferers have difficulty functioning or require bed rest during a headache attack. So, Mike, uh, how are you doing today, first of all? I'm good, Brady. Happy birthday to you. Uh, happy birthday to you. Thank you. So, uh, and, and we better do a shout-out to Emily. Happy birthday. Three of us in, at Freedom in one day. We're all Geminis. I know. That's crazy, isn't it? It's is crazy, yes. Um, so we want to get started right away with... Um, so uh, migraine is a chronic and episodic disorder uh, characterized by headache attacks. So... Um, what is a migraine in layman's terms um, to someone who doesn't necessarily know what they are or what it feels like? No, it's a, that's a great question. And, you know, there certainly is a distinction. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's various headache societies and associations that have come up with different diagnostic criteria to help differentiate, let's say, migraines from maybe more of a chronic tension type headache. So in general, a migraine would really be sort of a recurrent headache, but it can last anywhere from four to 72 hours. So a pretty lengthy uh, stint. Tends to be more one-sided. One side of the head or facial area will feel more like a pulsating uh, type of headache and can be pretty moderate uh, and certainly all the way up into severe. And it can generally decrease the ability of someone to function in everyday uh, situations. Okay. And um, what are the associated symptoms um, that someone would have if, they're, if they haven't experienced a migraine before? Okay. Uh, generally, we're looking for at least two of the three things that I'm going to uh, share. Uh, you know, not uncommon that patients with migraines will experience uh, some form of nausea and or vomiting, uh, sensitivity to light called photophobia, or sensitivity to sound called phonophobia. Uh, some other symptoms that could also occur would be sweating or cold hands, uh, sometimes diarrhea, uh, pale skin color. Uh, sometimes people have sensitivity to their scalp uh, from touch or pressure, or even things like wearing a necklace, uh, a brushing of their hair, or, or shaving can uh, be sort of hypersensitive. We call this type of pain allodynia. So it's Elodinia is sort of what we would call maybe an abnormal response to touch, that right if we were to touch you or if there was a sheet, you know, you're in bed and there's a sheet on your leg or body, really that shouldn't hurt. But for some people that actually can cause uh, pain sensation and we label that as, you know, either hypersensitivity or allodynia. So, uh, you know, it's a definitely a different situation and not uncommon patients will say, I literally just need to like stop everything I'm doing go into a dark, quiet room and, you know, try to let this pass because it's just uh, can become quite debilitating. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. And I guess you can understand um, if you have someone in your life who is dealing with uh, migraines or maybe you don't um, and it's someone at work and you don't understand why maybe their work production's dipping or why they have to take these um, breaks in their day or maybe they can't come to work for long periods of time. Um, so uh, with these symptoms, um, how common is it for someone to see nausea or vomiting or sensitivity to light as a, um, as a symptom of their, and do all of them come at once? Is it one of the, um, one of them? Is it all of them? Good, good question. I mean, in general, <laughs> and I apologize, I've been getting over a little bit of a cold here, folks. I've got this strange cough. Um, so, in general, again, you want to make sure there's at least, you know, two of the three things that we discussed earlier. Uh, nausea generally seems to happen in about three out of four patients. Uh, vomiting, roughly about one out of three. Sensitivity to light uh, is quite high, usually four out of five patients. And sensitivity to sound can tend to be three out of four patients, you know, will deal with that. Roughly a little bit more than half will tend to have that hypersensitivity or allodynia that we talked about. And uh, believe it or not, too, uh, uh, clients can also, um, uh, you know, almost four out of five or 80% can suffer from like slow, slow passage of stomach contents through the gut. So kind of like a delayed gastric emptying um, in which, you know, we maybe don't think about, but this can also then as a result slow the absorption of the oral medication they're taking to possibly try and help treat their migraine. Uh, the other thing that we, we know too, which makes it a challenge, is when people do feel nauseous or uh, are vomiting, uh, they may choose to delay or skip taking their oral med, right? Which then again, just delays getting some of that more immediate relief and to try and manage the migraine uh, as, as soon as possible. So you know, that, that's the challenge with this. Uh, when they come on, they can come on severe uh, and quick and really impair the person, uh, really decrease the quality of their life and, you know, certainly affect, right, not only themselves, but I'm sure the family flow of the day and, and then needless to say, you know, work production, period. Yeah, that, the biggest thing for me, just what you're talking about, seems extremely complex, right? And I think that's one of the biggest things with headaches and migraines is that there's so many different symptoms that you're having to deal with and so many things that you have to think about when treating. Um, and so if you're a patient who hasn't been to a healthcare provider or hasn't um, sought help um, about their headaches or maybe they're just starting and they don't exactly know what's going on, um, how, are, how do you start? How do you start helping yourself, getting yourself in a position to uh, treat the migraines and get those to go away? Uh, uh, great question. Yes. Um, so, so what we tend to find can be most helpful, and uh, it's pretty consistent too with the National Headache Foundation that most of you can uh, search up on the web. They actually have what's called a headache diary. So, some things that can at least be helpful prior to seeing a, a healthcare practitioner would be providing a diary that can help record the frequency, uh, the severity, and the duration of the tax. Um, keep track of, you know, any treatments that you maybe have had, you know, whether it's either medication related or, you know, you found if you use heat or ice or caffeine or magnesium or these types of things, you know, what, what, what has helped you? What are some of the outcomes and, and maybe what have been some of the not so great outcomes or side effects? What have you maybe identified as some of the possible uh, triggers uh, associated with that? Is it anything to do with your diet? you know, or eating, you know, some of our clients will say, you know, since I've gone gluten-free, you know, I'm, I'm able to control that better. Or, you know, for some people, it's the keto uh, temporarily to help just change and mix things up. Um, you know, a big one that eventually we're going to do a nice podcast on sleep. I mean, sleep is just so crucial uh, on, in so many venues of just staying well and healthy. Uh, and that certainly can be a problem uh, for migraine sufferers. You know, exercise. You know, some people, ironically, can get relief from exercise with migraines. Others, exercise can actually be the trigger. And that can also help us determine maybe, you know, what might be more at the root cause of the migraines. All of us, right, stress, life, work stress, family stress, you know, all those things can play a role clearly. 
And then as we've talked about a little bit, you know, certain exposures to, <coughs> I'm sorry, light, you know, is there a particular uh, type of lighting at work maybe that's triggering this or at home? Uh, different sounds or smells, right? Lots, uh, not a lot, but as some of our clients have chemical sensitivities. So they clearly come in um, and, and even would ask as a practitioner, I'd prefer you don't wear a particular cologne or any of those things because I'm very sensitive to those types of smells and that can trigger things. And then finally, you know, weather uh, can certainly potentially play a role. <coughs> I'm so sorry, folks. And then maybe the menstrual cycle uh, for, for women to uh, think about and, and consider as well. Yeah, that's, that's a long list of yes. things. And I think that also leads us kind of into the importance of when you do have these migraines, you've, you've got to get help, and you've got to get help from um, a wide range of healthcare professionals, um, not just including PT. There's so many other useful things that you can do, whether that might be seeing a dietitian, right, or that might be talking to your physical therapist about how much physical activity you should be doing. If you should be um, participating in physical activity due to migraine levels. And if that's helpful, can they refer you on to a personal trainer um, or someone that can help you do the correct things or give you the right um, exercise routines or proper strengthening exercises, you know? Um, and so who should you be discussing your migraine problems with? What treatment options are available to those who suffer? Mm -hmm. um, uh, good. Yes, it's, uh, you know, again, it's helpful if we have some of that early information when you come in so we can help include that as part of your uh, situation. You know, the thing, too, that's uh, interesting about migraines and, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I had brought in uh, Cesar Fernandez de la Pena. He's uh, barely a 40-year-old uh, gentleman. He's uh, two PhDs. He's a PT, he's a doctor of osteopathy, and um, he's done over 300 publications and written some books. He's, he's quite the expert in sort of, you know, migraines, headaches, myofascial pain, temporal mandibular disorders, and that. So uh, I had him come in and, and uh, provide a, a three-day program for our entire uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy staff. And <coughs> one thing I didn't think about, ironically, after all these years, 30 years as a therapist, but he brought up a good point. You know, the challenge with migraines are that most of the time, almost majority of our patients come to us because they're in some form of pain, and they tend to probably have pain when they come into the clinic. The challenge with a migraine sufferer is most of them can't function, so therefore they tend to not come in or actually cancel the day of a migraine, right? A lot of it could just be to transportation. How are they going to get here? But it would actually be helpful to see them when they're in that state so you can better determine the potential triggers, at least from a musculoskeletal standpoint anyway, as, as far as physical therapy is concerned. So, you know, that, that's, that's something to think about. You know, uh, we, we tend to see migraine sufferers when they're feeling good and they're feeling fine in the moment. Um, so it can make it challenging uh, objectively when you're uh, taking someone through an evaluation, what is the potential trigger? Um, you know, some of the big things when it comes to, you know, early treatment sure is, you know, treat it the first sign of an attack if you can wait. Most of the patients out there who are dealing with this, you know, I'm going to make an assumption they have found a medication that potentially helps when they take it, um, you know, uh, uh, and that can help alleviate the symptoms pretty quickly. Um, making sure they keep their medications with them when they go out or travel again. And then again, considering uh, preventative therapy. So, you know, what, is, what does preventative therapy mean to try and, uh, you know, our big goal is to try and re reverse or reduce the severity and the frequency of the migraines. So, you know, obviously we're a physical and occupational therapy clinic. So, you know, I believe that that's a wonderful opportunity for people because not uncommon uh, that the migraine sufferers have other underlying headache disorders like chronic tension type headaches. In which case, right, we take them through a pretty thorough eval, look at their posture, look at their cervical spine, uh, all the facial muscles and the neck muscles that can create and mimic referred pain to the head and the face. And then, you know, uh, we won't have time to discuss it, but obviously, you know, a lot of these uh, migraineous and headache sufferers have TMD, temporal mandibular disorders. And that's where I think it can get a little challenging and where things can get missed. 
And I think what makes our practice unique is that, you know, each location has people skilled in evaluating and treating temporomandibular disorders. And once you sort of look at the whole person and the whole body, you can have an impact on these things. Um, but other things, right, um, you know, uh, relaxation training is something for people to consider. Uh, biofeedback training, you know, cognitive behavioral management, I always think can be a wonderful addition to their care. Acupuncture, certainly, for some people that can be of benefit. Um, you know, we obviously do dry needling, which is completely different, different philosophy and science from acupuncture, but we have seen that immensely help people with uh, headache-related issues, migraines, muscle-related disorders, um, and then, you know, nutritional supplements, helping you find the appropriate person that can maybe help tease out your diet and your nutritional supplement. And then, right, massage, chiropractic. I mean, I think it can become a very important team effect. And we certainly, right, folks, can't ignore the fact that, you know, at a minimum, right, you've got to at least be seen by your general doc or even possibly a neurologist. You know, certainly want to make sure, especially in our younger folks, that, you know, there isn't something more severe going on. So if there's any potential for red flags and what I mean by that, right, which would be any unfortunate possibility of a tumor, you know, those things need to be looked at and, and certainly ruled out. Um, so I, I think it's you know, crucial, obviously, to have a physician involved in this that uh, has some level of expertise in this as well. So I want to I want to dive into a, something that you mentioned mentioned with um, you know the training that our therapists get, um, and I, I don't think that's I I think there are a lot of physical therapy practices around the world and a lot of physical therapists across the country that are super interested in this topic and um, just in general are out there to constantly improve their skills and constantly work on things. And I, I feel like, you know, we're a little bit biased, but, um, you know, PT as a profession, I feel is not a lot of PTs have super high egos. So their willingness to collaborate and pass on patients <clears throat> and work with other healthcare providers and not just saying that this is like the one-stop shop, but what the direct access laws it's a great starting point mm -hmm. for a PT to evaluate you and say, here's all of the options going on. We have all this knowledge about how to treat headaches and migraines, and here's all the different things that go into it. We can help you with this aspect of things, but we are also knowledgeable enough to pass you to the right places so that you're not kind of meaninglessly wandering around the healthcare landscape trying to find the right available treatment options. Mm -hmm. And that can save you, I think, time and money. And that's something we're going to go to in the second segment. But um, what are your thoughts on, you know, just PT being one of the first points of contact that you might have for migraines or headaches um, or a lot of orthopedic issues in general. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a, that's a great perspective you bring up because I, you know, I generally like to think about for most conditions, right, trying to start with the most conservative approach first um, and then, you know, ramping it up if, <coughs> if good conservative intervention isn't working. So it's the same thing we talk about, you know, when I lecture... Uh, uh, other th other therapists with uh, temporomandibular my temporomandibular course is um, uh, you know that's the beauty of physical therapy in general right it's a conservative approach and and usually anything we do is is reversible meaning you know it's it, while we might uh, hurt someone occasionally right it's very rare we ever do irreparable harm to somebody so um, I, I think that's the big plus of physical therapy I, th I think too like. You know, we just have been so fortunate to be skilled in treating uh, the whole body. You know, just like our occupational therapists that work with us, too. I really think our occupational therapists are phenomenal with us and, and have a unique skill set because, uh, because they're willing to learn and collaborate with us. I think they have even a much greater depth and wealth of knowledge and skill than most traditional occupational therapists do. Um, so... You know, uh, I think it's a great place to start because we know the musculoskeletal system well. Having said that, you know, uh, you know, just because someone's a physical therapist, 
Uh, I'm here to tell you that the schools, right, there's only so much that we can be taught and trained. So usually with headache and migraine, TMD, some of these other things, uh, you most of these therapists have got to go out and get additional training. So I think, you know, also kind of the model buyer beware. I think what frustrates me the most is when a client will have come to us, and usually by the time they're coming to us, they've maybe seen seven or eight other healthcare providers uh, with maybe some change, some improvements, but not uh, to the level of their expectation. And so as a result, they kind of get a bad taste in their mouth, like, oh, well, you know, I've been to physical therapy, you know, and then you, you find out, well, where did you go? And, and this is not meant to, it's not saying freedom is better than anyone else, right? But, you know, all of us have different skill sets. And when I tend to find out, well, where they went, I'm like, oh, well, that, you know, that person's awesome in sports medicine or a different form of physical therapy, but they don't have any formal training in headache and migraine. So I think sometimes even within our profession, it's unfortunate we are not creating better liaisons and connections to refer within our own profession and know when like, hey, you know what, this is kind of out of my league. I'm going to send you to either one of my therapists in-house who's the expert at this, or you know what, outside of your environment. Um, and then to your point, I think, you know, at least here at Freedom, we've done a really good job. If we've got a breadth of network, we have massage people we like, we have chiropractors we love and respect, and, and physicians and acupuncture. And so I, I do feel we are very open and eclectic to a team approach to get people better. What, what questions should you be asking um, your physical therapist in terms of what, um, what certifications do you have, what continuing education do you have that is going to help me treat my specific condition, in this case, migraines and headaches, mm -hmm. jaw pain, neck pain, whatever that mm -hmm. may be. Yeah, that's that's great. I just actually had a, a lady. Uh, we've been going back and forth in emails. Ellen, if you're listening, hello. <laughs> um, but um, she, she raises a lot of really good questions because as a consumer, it's really hard, I think, for any of us, myself included, sometimes to navigate. I know myself personally, when I get requests for... Uh, other quality therapists throughout the U.S. and internationally, you know, the first thing I tend to do if I don't know somebody <coughs> specific to a state or country is go to some of the websites. And you'd like to think in the bios alone that they would toot their own horn. Uh, so, but what I tend to find is uh, they will all mention services they treat, like headache, women's health, all these different things, so it looks great. And then when you read the individual bios of all the therapists, there really isn't a one of them that commands any of the fields or expresses any special interest or certifications. So I think, you know, the, the one thing you could do in your area, certainly, you know, Google can be your friend to some degrees to help narrow down the choices, but hopefully somewhere within the bio you will, you will see a therapist that has, you know, either a particular niche in, in headache or migraines or, again, when I tend to think of people with uh, temporal mandibular certifications like... Uh, a few of us at Freedom have a craniofacial certification or a certified cervical and temporal mandibular therapist certification or at least vast additional training. When you know how to treat that population of temporal mandibular disorders, in line with that are headache and migraineous issues as well. So I think the problem continues to be there are not enough of us throughout the U.S. that do it. Having said that, right, in the schools, certainly a lot of people can get better by treating the cervical spine, and most physical therapists, you know, were very well trained in the cervical spine and the entire spine, and posture and correction and exercise and movement. I mean, that is some of our, our, our amazing forte. So I think people can get better to some extent, and then maybe they need to search out and hire professionals that have just spent a lot more time educating themselves and, and getting better trained at these things. Yeah, and that's I think that's a big takeaway that you can have from this is that physical therapists are there have their each individual skill set and they enjoy treating certain kinds of um, ailments and within especially within the orthopedic setting, physical therapists are specialized or can be specialized, um, and finding those practitioners are can really help accelerate the your progress that you can make and getting better so absolutely um all right so uh, on the next segment we'll be doing a little bit of just healthcare education in general and talking about um the ownership of uh, a clinic and billing and things like that so we'll see you on the other side thanks a lot
This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom at freedompt.com. Welcome back to the Freedom Talks podcast. And uh, now in the second segment, we want to talk about um, a little bit about healthcare uh, in an overarching sense and how patients are billed and things like that and difficulties we see in our clinics um, and some of the weird things that we see patients deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, So, Mike, I just want to discuss some of the really complex situations. We always have patients in our clinic that are calling um, to discuss their bill with the billing department. Um, And so, we just want to start with what does it mean to be in network versus out of network for your insurance policy? Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, thanks, Brady. Uh, hello, everyone again. Oh, you know, healthcare, right? What a what a quagmire and a mess we've gotten ourselves into. It's it's challenging for all of us uh, to navigate, right? Even myself, uh, who I guess I'd consume, I'd been in healthcare for thirty years, and you know, just when I think I've got a good handle on everything. Uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's struggles to understand bills and statements and in and out of network, you know. I mean, so the, the, the easy answer, right, is that when all of us, those of us that have health insurance plans, either individually or through our, our, our employer um, or Medicare, right, um, in general, right, it behooves you uh, to see an in-network provider, uh, meaning that this way any costs you incur will typically help pay down a portion of your in-network deductible. And then sometimes, right, each visit, most of us have probably gotten accustomed to a copay or some plans, you know, they might have a $2,500 or $5,000 either individual or family deductible, in-network deductible, meaning you have to meet that first before your insurance will then start to pay the claims and it will no longer come out of your pocket. So, you know, easy example for us is, you know, at Freedom, we have a higher deductible plan. And once you either as an individual or of a family have satisfied your in-network deductible, uh, then uh, everything else beyond that is paid at 100%. And even within that, there's a caveat, like some of our medications, uh, there's still a copay until you've spent like another thousand in copay, and then even the medication then will be covered at 100%. The thing to really be aware of is if you choose to see an out-of-network provider is, and you know, right, that's usually something the provider will help you determine, at least I know at Freedom, I, I feel like that's one area we pride ourselves. Our goal is to really try and keep the patient out of the quagmire of healthcare. So we really encourage people to give us their insurance information, you should always call and verify your benefits and verify that a provider is in network or versus out. Um, but we will also do that as a courtesy so that at least hopefully we're getting the same answer. Because unfortunately, folks, and, and I, you know, I feel like, and, and maybe I'm going to be a little defensive because I'm a provider, uh, I feel like a lot of healthcare insurance companies pit them against us. And it is not uncommon that we we as the provider and you as the patient are told conflicting information. So again, we really do our best on our end and we document the calls and the time. I would always encourage you when speaking to your health insurance company to uh, get the name of the person, a phone number, date and time, because most of those calls are recorded. And if they give you misinformation, you at least have something to fight and fall back on. You know, for example, if they tell you a provider's in network and then you know, you come to find out that they're not in network. Um, So back to the in and out, right? The the challenge without a network, which again, you may have to, right? You may need to see a specialist and, you know, uh, and they're not in your particular group. The challenge without a network tends to be then that that provider does not have a contractual agreement with your health insurance. So that means that, for example, I'm just going to pick a super simple number. If you see an in-network provider, and let's say they charge you $200 for that visit, um, and let's say, you know, with the insurance plan you have, uh, the provider has agreed to $100 
to receive as full payment, um, that their fee of 200 right, will be reduced to 100 And then whether it's a portion of your payment or the insurance, bottom line is that provider will get $100 for that visit, and we have to write off the other $100. When you tend to go see an out-of-network provider, it's very possible that if they charge 200 you will be fully responsible for that 200 Even if your insurance, let's say, was to pay a portion of it, you know, right? Let's say in this case they were willing to pay 50% of that. So your insurance company would pay 100 but that out-of-network provider has every right to bill you for the difference to make up their full $200 fee. That's one thing that an out-of-network provider has the privilege of doing that an in-network provider does not because we've agreed to a contractual arrangement with the insurance company. I think what people also need to be aware of is that unless you have a very unique plan, your in-network and out-of-network deductibles are completely separate. So I think you have to be careful when you go to providers who tell you that they will match the in-network rate that they're used to, um, as long as they're billing your insurance company, however, all of those dollars and money will go towards your out-of-network deductible, which is almost always separate from your in-network. So let's say, for example, you go to a physical therapy place, they're out-of-network, um, <coughs> uh, those claims and charges that they submit will go towards your out-of-network uh, deductible, but not towards your in. So if you need more therapy, again, part of the year, and let's say you choose in that case to go to an in-network deduct- uh, in provider and you've not met your in-network deductible, you'll basically be paying again. So those are some things to, to think about. Now, where things, in my opinion, as a consumer get really complicated, and I want to try to keep this as generic as I'm not, again, I'm not... Uh, uh, but, it, but it's pretty well understood and known that, as most of you know who come to us, Freedom Physical Therapy is a private, uh, privately owned, freestanding physical therapy, occupational therapy clinic with no affiliations to any hospitals or venture groups or anything like that. So um, if you come to us for physical therapy, and I want to use that simple example again, and if we were to bill $200 for something, but because of your insurance, we've agreed to accept 100 for that payment, um, and let's say where life gets complicated, you have a 20% coinsurance, so not a copay, but a 20% coinsurance, right? So 20% of $100 means you would have to eventually pay $20 to us, but your insurance will pay the other 80. So 80 plus 20, right, gives us our $100. Now let's say, however, you call one of the local hospital systems uh, because maybe your doctor uh, is employed by the hospital system and, you know, right, naturally tend to steer uh, to their, in, you know, their in-house physical therapy versus uh, obviously out of their system. Uh, it is incredibly common that hospital systems tend to get three to four times more uh, per visit for physical therapy. So if I use that same example, um, you need to be very careful because it's important to know um, what your hospital system physical therapy visit will get uh, reimbursed at by the insurance company. So for example, right, I gave you the example, if you came to Freedom, we have a contractual agreement, we're going to get $20 of that $100, insurance is going to pay the 80 If you went to a hospital system in town for the same um, uh, physical therapy visit, it's not uncommon the hospital would get paid two, three, maybe $400 for that visit. And now you're still going to be responsible for 20%. So if we use $400 as an example, right, 20% of $400 is $80. So you just went from paying $20 out of pocket for every physical therapy session for eight to $80, right? So you can literally come to some of us private practices four times uh, before you will have paid just what you pay in one visit uh, at a hospital-based system or even some other uh, other. Uh, uh, therapy companies that are out there that have, you know, uh, uh, negotiated different, better rates because maybe they have three, 400 clinics under their belt, that type of thing. So I think that's where it gets really hard is people need to be aware just because also the providers in network. 
it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best value. Now, again, I'm a firm believer, right? If someone is worth it, you should pay. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all for providers. I'm a provider. And if someone has a particular specialty, unique gift, talent, or you just think that they are, you know, really providing amazing care or word of mouth, you know, I mean, you know, then it's always worth taking care of ourselves in the long run. So, but I just want people to be mindful that there's still even as a difference of what your cost could be, uh, even when someone tells you they're in network. Yeah, and it's it's crazy for any condition how widely prices vary in healthcare, and I think you know it's a systemic thing that eventually someone's going to have to address. Um, but it, yeah, it's a crazy landscape that we have right now. Yes. Um, so if you're looking at your bill um, from <clears throat> anywhere or company, um, you're going to be able to find some of these things. Correct. You're going to be able to find what of certain procedures costing what a, a company is billing out for a certain um, treatment that they're doing for you. Um, we, we use codes to um, tell the insurance company what we did and why we're billing the way we do. So if you're looking at your bill, um, some people will see it and go, well, I thought I paid that already, and it looks like I got that on my bill again. And they'll call our billing department and say, hey, you're double billing me for stuff. Hey, I've had this treatment, but only once. Why are you putting it on your bill again? Um, We have to talk to insurance companies about what we're doing so that they give us um, the proper reimbursement for whatever we're doing. Um, What is the difference between resubmitting to an insurance for something that didn't previously get covered versus, hey, we're, we're charging you twice for the same thing, which we never do. Right. Uh, good, good. Lots of good questions in there. Um, so, so, yes, first of all, folks, you know, <clears throat> most of us, you know, uh, and most of our billing people, and I know I will speak especially for freedom, like seriously, these are salt of the earth, super amazing, great people, okay? And if they have to call you or you have to talk to them, they're just ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, doing their job. And, uh, and they happen to do it really well. But keep in mind that a lot of times just to even get claims processed, maybe people think it's as simple as we push a button, it gets submitted, and it gets paid. Not really. Insurance companies lag, they deny, they take their time in paying, uh, and then it invariably requires us to get back on the phone, specifically our billing people, sometimes 45 minutes to an hour and a half to deal with one claim for one patient. So there's a lot that really goes into this. So first I would just ask that, you know, In most instances, I truly believe all the billing people in the world, it's a tough job. It tends to be the job that, you know, they maybe get blasted a lot from from consumers and patients because it's easier for us as patients and consumers to take it out on a billing person versus our provider, right? Because we we want our provider to still like us. But for some reason, (laughs) we don't seem to care about having that relationship with uh, the billing person. And, you know, we're a small company, right? 50 employees. We all know each other. And I got to tell you, I love each and every one of them that works here. And they all work really hard, you know, on on your behalf. So, um, you know, I think dealing with these people and treating them with respect is the first line to try and get getting things settled. So one thing that is unique about ancillary services, I feel then just going to see your doctor, which can make it challenging, right? If you go to your doctor for a visit, unless they're doing a bunch of different tests, there's usually just one fee, right? It's the initial consult fee, so it's a one-line item, and it looks simple. Usually when you go to, let's say, physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractic, you know, other providers, we are required to bill different codes and units uh, for everything we do during the session. So what makes, I think, our statements challenging, and not just ours, I mean most outpatient therapy, you know, uh, statements challenging is you come for one visit. There could be four to six or more line items of things that were done. And sometimes, and, you know, hard to know why, right, because we've been doing this now for 22-plus years, but you will submit a claim on a patient's behalf. And let's say there were four codes used on a particular visit, 
And for whatever reason, the insurance will only, only pay us three out of the four. So now we have to resubmit the claim, usually through an appeal or whatever, and say, hey, you know, there were four codes on here. You only paid us for three. You need to redo this. So like, for example, uh, my daughter is uh, going to school in Colorado. She had some health issues uh, earlier part of this year. And even for me, I'm having to review every statement in EOB, right, explanation of benefits that comes in the mail. And... Um, for whatever reason, our, our insurance uh, paid, let's say, three-quarters of this particular bill, but not all of it. So the provider naturally was looking for me to pay the balance, which I'm all about. I'll pay my bills. I got no issues, but it just didn't seem right to me that our insurance didn't pay the bill in full like they should have. So the healthcare provider in Boulder had to resubmit. And I, I wish I had this piece of paper in front of you, but if I did, it specifically shows on there from the insurance company uh, that this is a resubmission, um, so it appears as a duplicate claim. But, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't practices out there possibly trying to get away and scam people for double billing. I assume that that happens, right? But I also like to believe it's the very small percentage of providers and healthcare systems that are doing that. Um, it's it's simply a duplicate claim. It's, it's claim. It's the way that we have to resubmit to get the full payment. But So it could be perceived as being billed again, uh, that we're trying to get a double payment, but that's that's just really not the case. We're just trying to get that extra $10, $20, you know, whatever it is that should have been paid to us. So that's, you know, that's that's number one that I think makes the claims confusing. And then uh, one of the things I feel like I pride ourselves on well, and we've been doing this for years, I feel like long before it was even spoken about is transparency of pricing. And um, And I know... Hospital systems and that, it's really hard for them, right, <coughs> to do the same thing. But I think we're, we're finding, right, if we go for a GI scope or, you know, an MRI or some of these things, there's some general pricing we can get information. But as a private practice, uh, almost all of us know what our contractual agreements are. So we may not be able to give you an exact dollar amount, right, because it just depends what the therapist does on that day. What are you feeling like? You know, was it a 30-minute session? Was it a 45-minute session? All those factors can come into play. But most good providers should be able to have someone at the office that could give you an indication if you came and used your insurance, what might be, usually the first visit tends to be more expensive because there's an evaluation along with treatment. But usually every subsequent visit after that, give or take 20%, you should know, you know, it's gonna cost you about 105, 110, 140 per visit. Um, and then if you choose not to use your uh, health insurance, a lot of us do have prop pay plans, meaning if you choose not to use your insurance, um, we provide a prop pay discount uh, for uh, each particular visit. So again, you would also be able to budget and know accordingly uh, what those costs are, are going to be. So, um, so it is a challenge. I, I feel bad for consumers because it is hard to understand it. But but please know most you know most of us I really think have office staff that are more than willing to walk people through their claims and understand it, um, and and that you know we need to get paid for the services we provide folks. It's you know we're really in a unique situation. I always use the auto industry as an example. You know when you take your car in for new brakes and tires, right? I mean if you don't pay, you don't get your car. Uh, but in healthcare, right? Most people tend to get care and then pay later. And it's a very unique model. I'm not sure I love it, to be honest. Um, but, you know, just be mindful that, you know, even if maybe you didn't always get the outcome you hoped for, you know, you did receive a service. And, and you know, we all need to, I think, at least in my humble opinion, take care of our providers because, I mean, all of us are trying to do the best we can uh, with the best intentions in mind for our patients. Yeah, especially here in the U.S., the way the healthcare system's set up, it, it, it's definitely um, it's it's a lot different than countries that have uh, healthcare service taken out of the the people's taxes and then it's provided. And it's a different system, um, and I don't think it's ideal here, right? Because we don't have it necessarily figured out. <clears throat> but the one thing about especially private practices and things like that is that we do need to get paid for our services. And it might seem a little counterintuitive that you know we're trying to help people, but we're also trying 
to make a living. And, and I think that's a good thing, but it also pushes our practice forward. We, you know, it also forces us to have the best treatment options available to educate the therapist that we hire to the utmost degree so that when you're coming in, you're getting the best care. So there are positives to the system that we have in terms of innovation and time and effort we put into improving uh, the practice and, and the care that you receive. Totally, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and, and I think, you know, maybe people forget, right? So like physical therapy now is about a seven-year degreed profession. You know, think of your physician, you know, most of them 12, 16, if they're specialists and surgeons, 18 years, you know, that they've given above and beyond their high school education. Um, so I, I think we've forgotten a little bit about the sacrifices they made early on in their life to forgo an income for a long time. Um, and so I, I kind of feel bad in a way that somehow there seems to be a perception that, you know, we should get paid less uh, for what we provide, that we're all making a killing. You know, I can tell you folks, most of us that, you know, are, are doing what we're doing and assuming, you know, like in our case, we're, we're spending, <coughs> in my mind, a significant amount of time with people, 45 minutes to an hour, usually per session, which I think is rare. Uh, I know most, uh, a lot of other facilities, you know, seven minutes per patient. Um, they've got things dialed into the minute. Um, I think we need to all be mindful of those things. But again, in order to provide one-on-one -on -one care and, and for the length of time, it, it, it costs, you know, to be able to provide all that and more importantly, to have qualified, well-educated staff. Um, so... So I don't know if I answered your question or if I just got lost there, Brady. <laughs> no, what was the question I, again? <laughs> Sorry, I, folks. <laughs> no, I think I think you just touched on. You know, it's it's important that patients understand where we're coming from too, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. that's that's yep. the biggest thing we want yep. Uh, yep. everyone to take away is that we're doing our best to help you. Yeah, and. Yep. But that includes having us making a living, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Because right, if we, you know, there's always the joke, you know, that. You know, I mean, any business, if we're not turning a profit, right, well, we can't exist. Yep. So, I mean, I guess it also depends upon how important it is for all of us in the U.S. to have choice. And I guess I'm a big believer of choice, um, you know. Um, and, and I think we also forget, and again, it's maybe because I have the opportunity, and I'm, this is not making a political statement in any way, <clears throat> but I recently was in Canada teaching and. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes they have to wait, unless it's life or death situation, up to six months to a year, either A, to get on a surgery schedule or to just get an MRI. So I, I well, I know the U.S. health system isn't perfect. Our ability to have accessibility to care is amazing, mm -hmm. uh, folks. It, it really is. And yep, it's not perfect. And I don't know if it's ever going to be perfect. But, you know, for most of you, I think, who live in various communities, at least I know in our experience, so many of our clients, they've found their own little medical team. You know, they got their primary doc they love. They have their maybe nurse practitioner they love, their massage, their PT, their chiro. Um, and if they don't, we help them find one, you know. So, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, it takes a little bit of work, but I think most people eventually get good at finding their team of providers um, that genuinely cares about them and helping them get better and doing it, you know, in a cost uh, effective and affordable option. What, you know, I don't want to interrupt you, Brady, but real quick, one thing I do want to talk about before I forget that, you know, I think could make it easier. There's a big push for value-based healthcare. So meaning that, um, and it's not like this wasn't done in the, I remember <coughs> just before I got in the practice, this was already sort of going on. It's just another form of, of managed care, but meaning let's say uh, someone uh, has a total knee replacement. And the, the, the payers, uh, the hospital systems, and some of us in outpatient therapy are working at sort of a all-encompassing fee. So, for example, if you had a knee replacement, now I'm just making up some numbers here right now, but let's just say you had a knee replacement. And um, I think this is where it might get easier for the consumer, but also continue to force us as providers to provide high-quality care efficiently is, for example, if you go and get a knee replacement somewhere, um, the total cost to your carrier, right? Now, if you have a huge deductible, you might have to pay a part of that, but let's just say it's $15,000. So what normally used to cost forty-five dollars to 
they're going to accept, meaning the healthcare system or the provider, $15,000. That's going to cover start to finish some prehab, um, some surgery, of course, anesthesia, and then the post-op recovery, right? The outpatient physical therapy. And that 15000 will get divvied up. Let's say a portion will go to the surgeon, a portion will go to anesthesia, hospital costs, operating room, and then ultimately the outpatient, you know, let's say in this case, physical, physical therapy ser uh, services. So I think if we do continue to head in that direction and it is well received, um, I do think that'll make it easier for the consumer because it'll be a more global fee um, and maybe less challenging to look at those explanation of benefits and figure out, oh my God, is this accurate? Isn't it accurate? That type of thing. So I think that's where we're headed. We'll see if it comes to fruition in time. Yeah, and it's certainly such a robust topic, and there's yeah, we we could have a conversation yes. all day about it. But um, I think today we'll we'll wrap it up. And if you have any questions um, about the care that you're receiving, or if you need help finding other care elsewhere, or you just need an explanation about what's maybe going on with your bills or whatever it is, if there's any way we can help, visit freedompt.com and uh, fill out a contact form send an email and we can, you know, do our best to help direct you to the best care and answer your questions and try to make finding health care just easier. So love that message. Yep. So um, everyone, I hope you enjoyed our conversation and um, we look forward to uh, having you listen. So have a day. Day. Bye. Bye.